History This Week, July 22nd, 1934. I'm Sally Helm. The marquee outside Chicago's Biograph Theater announces a gangster movie playing tonight. Manhattan melodrama starring Clark Gable. It's a thrilling tale with a boat fire and lost love and multiple murders. And it doesn't end well for the gangster. Watching the movie that night is a real-life gangster, a very famous one, John Dillinger. He's a bank robber, and he's so good that he's earned a title no other criminal has ever had. Dillinger is public enemy number one. When the movie ends and the lights come up, Dillinger heads out into a hot Chicago night. A man nearby in the crowd lights his cigar. That's the signal. The federal agents are on Dillinger before he knows what's happening. He makes a break for the alley, but it's too late. Dillinger is shot down. The country's most famous outlaw has finally met his end. Today, the life and death of John Dillinger. He robbed banks, made it through shootouts, escaped from prison more than once. And in Depression-era America, a lot of people were rooting for him. I don't think many people thought that the likes of John Dillinger were really Robin Hoods, that they were stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. Some people did. But most people understood they were stealing for themselves, and they were okay with it. How did a bank robber dubbed public enemy number one become a national darling? And... How did Dillinger's crime spree make way for the modern FBI? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. We heard this story from Elliot Gorn, who wrote a book about Dillinger called Dillinger's Wild Ride. John Dillinger was a Hoosier. He was from Mooresville, Indiana. As a teenager, he's handsome, charming, a good baseball player. He gets bored of school at 16 and quits. He starts causing small-scale trouble. One night, he steals a car. The police are after him. And the next morning, he kind of panics and decides to enlist in the Navy. That day, he does basic training, gets sent to Boston. But pretty soon, he goes AWOL. And he's dishonorably discharged. So he comes back to Mooresville and gets married to a local farm girl named Beryl Hovius. But the marriage and the stable small-town life, they don't last long. Because around this time, Dillinger is also hanging out with a new friend, Ed Singleton. Singleton is a little bit older than Dillinger. He has a record. And the two of them end up deciding to rob an old man a grocer named Frank Morgan. He walks home on Saturday night, and they assault him. John Dillinger hits him 
hard on the head a couple of times with a railroad bolt. Uh, he goes down. Dillinger is carrying a gun. They struggle for the gun. Gun gets kicked away and goes off. And that frightens Dillinger and he and Singleton both flee. It's pretty serious. The grocer needs 11 stitches. And Dillinger, it seems, is feeling remorse. The next day, he's asking around town, how's old man Morgan? Well, word hasn't gotten around yet of this assault. The police figure it out and they pick him up. Dillinger will stand trial for assault and battery. And he decides to confess. He's a first-time offender and he thinks honesty might help him get a light sentence. Instead... Dillinger is sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. He's only 23 years old. And meanwhile... Ed Singleton hires a lawyer. Singleton gets off with a much lighter sentence, of which he serves very, very little. So there's a, there's a bitterness there just from the beginning. Dillinger himself will call this sentence a turning point, the reason his life begins to head in a different direction. He later writes, I went in a carefree boy and came out bitter toward everything in general. At the beginning of his time in prison, he's writing his wife these sweet love notes. Like, dearest, we will be so happy when I can come home to you and chase your sorrows away. There's this sort of almost goofy sentimentality to them, kind of love letters. They're a little bit cliched, I'm sure sincere in their way. But finally, she probably wisely for herself decides this is not going to go very well for me. She finally sues him for divorce after a few years, and he feels very betrayed by this. Dillinger is about five years into his sentence at that point. And not long after this, he requests a transfer to Indiana State Prison. He says it's because they have a better baseball team. We can't know for sure, but it seems like that might not be the full story. Dillinger knows that at Indiana State Prison... These are much more experienced criminals. Harry Pierpont, Red Hamilton, and this becomes his core. This is the beginnings of the Dillinger gang. Pierpont and Hamilton had been gangsters during the 20s, committing robberies. One newspaper later calls them the worst desperados locked up in this particular prison. It's from them that Dillinger learns the tricks of the trade that will eventually make him famous. After a few years in Indiana State Prison, Dillinger is granted parole. And so? After nine and a half years, early in 1933, he comes home to Mooresville. In the time Dillinger has been in prison, the entire world has transformed. He's sent to prison in 1924, prosperity of the 20s. He comes out in 1933. The country had been grinding through this depression at this point since 1929, roughly 25% unemployment. The country really is devastated in that moment. Dillinger has changed too. It's pretty clear, even though he, you know, pledges to go straight, goes to church with his father, tells the preacher that he's a new man, that he had learned a new trade there, and he intended to apply what he learned. He hooks up with a couple of other longtime criminals, bank robbers, and within a couple months, he's robbing banks. Dillinger has begun his new life. He and his small gang run all over Indiana and Ohio, stealing a few thousand dollars at a time from banks. In 1933, that's a lot of money. And Dillinger is a pretty straight-up bank robber. 
like run in guns in hand, force someone to open up the safe for you, grab the money, leave in your car. But he does have a certain style. Local Ohio papers, there'll be a story that the robber performed an odd feat that when he went in to get the money, he leapt over the counter to get behind the counter. This is a characteristic John Dillinger move. He does this in robbery after robbery. He's a pretty athletic guy. Between June and September of 1933, Dillinger and his gang rob six banks and net about $50,000. But then he makes a classic mistake. He falls in love. He starts seeing this woman in Ohio, and her landlady turns him over to the police. Before long, he's back in jail, this time in Lima, Ohio. But Dillinger has a plan. By the time he's arrested, it's actually already in motion. Just within the week before that, he had managed to get some guns into the Indiana State Prison, probably bribed someone, had them smuggled in to his friends. And just as he's getting caught and going into prison in Lima, his friends are getting out. They use the weapons to break out of prison, and they come to get Dillinger. On the night of October 12th, 1933, a group of them show up at the little jail in Lima. The sheriff, Jess Sarber, is there reading the newspaper. His wife's doing a crossword puzzle. Harry Pierpont walks up and pretends to be there on official business. He says, we're here to see the prisoner... John Dillinger. Sarver asks for documentation, and Pierpont pulls a gun and shoots him. Here's your documentation, he supposedly says. And they just flee from there. And that's really when the story starts to become national. Dillinger and his gang start robbing banks all over the country. South Dakota, Wisconsin, Ohio, Indiana... The story starts to seem like this enormous road trip, almost. People are following them in the press. And in Washington, D.C., there's an agency that's going to try to catch them. The fledgling Bureau of Investigation, run by a young, ambitious director, J. Edgar Hoover. At this time, the Bureau doesn't have a lot of power. It's relatively small. Its agents don't have to be armed. The exact limits of their jurisdiction is unclear because of the relationship between the state and the federal government. This agency had been formed to try and address crimes that crossed state lines. Before this, fighting crime was really up to the states themselves. So multi-state crimes were tough. But in 1933, it's still not totally clear exactly which crimes this federal bureau is supposed to be in charge of. And Dillinger's gang is making this jurisdiction question very real and very embarrassing. When robbers like John Dillinger pick out a bank, they don't want it to be in the middle of a state. They want it to be near a state border or at least county borders so that they can escape in their cars and escape the local law enforcement. It seems that Dillinger just can't be caught. He and his gang keep taunting the local authorities, staying just out of reach. For example, Dillinger goes to see his dentist, and somehow the police get wind of this. And there is a car chase with guns blazing before Dillinger and his girlfriend, Billy Frechette, manage to lose the police. And these kinds of stories get repeated, stories of, of sort of miraculous breakouts. And he is called the Houdini of the bank robbers. As Dillinger gets richer and richer, 
The American public falls more and more in love with him. He's handsome, charismatic. Plus, he's robbing banks. And many people have started to see banks as the real public enemy. And that, in some ways, is the biggest thing about the Depression. By the spring of 1933, something like 10,000 American banks have gone belly up. If your money, as a small business person, as a private saver, are in your local bank, and the bank goes out of business, you just lost everything. And so Dillinger is playing out a fantasy that a lot of people at the time might have had, of running into the bank and just taking whatever money is there. The public starts to see him as a kind of folk hero. There's one legend that I think is really indicative of how people came to think of John Dillinger, that in the course of one of his bank robberies, there was an old man in the bank, and he wanted to know if Dillinger wanted his money. And Dillinger basically said, no, I'm here for the bank's money, not yours. You keep your money. It's fine. People love him. And the gangster craze of the 30s goes beyond Dillinger. There were other famous criminals, like Pretty Boy Floyd and Al Capone. Gangster movies saw a huge increase during the Depression. There were nine of them made in 1930, and in 1931, that jumped to 26. Some people are worried that this outlaw thing could spin out of control. There's a whole fear of crime, fear that now that there's this era of deprivation that people are going to go out and steal. So people like J. Edgar Hoover really want to catch these high-profile gangsters. But Hoover is struggling to get resources for his federal law enforcement agency, and the hunt for Dillinger isn't really going anywhere. Until local law enforcement in Arizona finally catch a break. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In January of 1934, Dillinger and his gang have been on their bank-robbing road trip for about six months. They've landed in Tucson, Arizona. And one night, they run into some very bad luck. There's a fire in the hotel where they're staying. A couple of the firemen recognize pictures of gang members and then tip the police, the local police. And the police manage to arrest all of them without a shot being fired. It's front-page news. Dillinger gang captured. 
the group gets split up, shipped back to the various states where there are warrants out for their arrest. Some of them end up executed for their crimes. Dillinger lands in the local jail in Crown Point, Indiana, and he's received as a celebrity. He takes a photo alongside local sheriff Lillian Hawley. She boasts that her prison is inescapable. Dillinger just smiles. Nothing seems to make this man nervous. He escapes, by the way, because someone smuggles a wooden gun to him. A wooden gun. Some stories say he carved it himself, others that someone smuggled it in for him. Either way, Dillinger overpowers the guards with nothing but a fake gun, grabs one of their real guns, and walks out the front door. He steals the sheriff's car with an accomplice, and they drive up to Chicago. Well, he crosses state lines doing that, and the FBI can't look the other way. The media is going crazy. Dillinger escaped this inescapable prison. And by crossing state lines in a stolen cruiser, he has committed a federal crime. Which finally lands him under the jurisdiction of J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover puts a top agent on the case, a guy named Melvin Purvis, a rising star. Purvis and his team start to stake out Dillinger's hometown of Mooresville, wondering if he'll go back to see his family. And almost right away, Dillinger makes a fool of them. Literally under the noses of the FBI, Dillinger goes back to Mooresville with his girlfriend, Billy Frechette, have Sunday dinner, meet with the family. There's a photograph of John Dillinger taken just outside his father's home. He's in a nice suit with a hat. He's got a machine gun in one hand and the wooden gun in the other and a smile on his face. He's taunting them. Hoover is getting ripped apart in the press. People are wondering if Purvis is such a rising star after all. The Bureau is getting desperate. About a month later, Dillinger's gang has assembled in northern Wisconsin. They're staying at a vacation lodge called Little Bohemia. And the feds learn about it, and the federal agents fly up, literally fly up. Flying is really novel in 1934, and Purvis and his men are sure they're going to get Dillinger this time. In fact, while Purvis is on his way up, Hoover summons some reporters to tell them that Dillinger is about to be caught. The agents arrive at the lodge in the dark. They think they have it surrounded. But then, some watchdogs hear the agents walking through the woods and begin barking. The gang and the agents start firing at each other. A hotel guest and a federal agent are killed in the crossfire. And Dillinger? escapes out a back door. It is a disaster. It makes the Bureau of Investigation and Jade Hoover look terrible. Hoover is on the verge of losing his job by the spring of 1934. Dillinger is shaken by the gunfight, too. He decides that he needs to change his appearance. Make himself harder to find. He dyes his hair, he starts wearing glasses, and he has plastic surgery done. The doctor is really a butcher. He really could have died, but he doesn't. He comes through. The trouble is, when you look at pictures of Dillinger before and after, they don't change him that much that you wouldn't, that you really wouldn't recognize him. Around this time, Hoover officially names Dillinger public enemy number one. 
Dillinger is trying to lay low, but that's getting harder and harder. He does pull off one more robbery in South Bend, Indiana, but it goes sideways. A policeman is killed and three others wounded. There's a sense in which the world is closing in. I mean, even back in March, late March, when he goes to have dinner with his family, well, why did he do that? He must have known, he must have thought that this might be the last chance to see them. And he's right. Just a few days after the robbery in South Bend, Dillinger moves to Chicago with his girlfriend. He meets a woman named Anna Sage. Sage owns several brothels, and she has a murky immigration status. She's facing deportation to her native Romania. And one day, she puts in a call to the police. She says she'll sell information about Dillinger in exchange for a cash reward and help fighting against her deportation. She meets in secret with Special Agent Purvis, who says he'll do what he can. Anna tells the agent that the next evening, July 22nd, she and Dillinger and Dillinger's girlfriend are going to the movies. She doesn't know which theater it'll be, so federal agents decide to stake out two. Anna says she'll wear an orange dress so that they can pick her out of a crowd. The next night, Dillinger heads out, not knowing that he's been betrayed. They go to this film, Manhattan Melodrama, starring uh, Clark Gable. Dillinger was always fascinated by films. He loved movies. He actually started talking about the possibility late in his life of having a film made about his life. Dillinger and the two women end up at the Biograph Theater. They go in, they see the movie, and when they come out, Dillinger, a woman on each arm, recognizes that this is a trap. He breaks to his left, starts running down Lincoln Avenue, and turns toward the alley. And just then, the federal agents shoot him down in the back. That is the end of John Dillinger. He was 31. The press has a field day. John Dillinger, prince of crime. He laughed at the law, and he laughed at death, too. But death last last as he brazenly left the Chicago movie theater. A crowd actually shows up to see Dillinger's body lying on a slab at the Cook County morgue. After Dillinger dies, there was a death mask taken of his face. And one of the copies of it was, in fact, in Hoover's office, along with a gun of Dillinger's. There was a kind of trophy case kind of quality to this. For Hoover and his bureau, Dillinger's death changes everything. Within a year, the Bureau of Investigation becomes the FBI, with J. Edgar Hoover at the helm. Agents get issued firearms, their power of arrest expands. The FBI is suddenly seen as serious and effective. And they play this up. Hoover personally endorses a series of short films called Crime Doesn't Pay. They feature FBI agents taking down Dillinger-like villains. And slowly, public perception of outlaws starts to shift. This idea of the evils of crime and of men like Dillinger is out there all the time, even as the public counters a certain amount of it with their own legends of the heroism of these guys. Really, American movies change. And the new crime movies, the new gangster movies, always invariably end with the death of the criminal. For decades after Dillinger's death, 
the lawmen are the heroes, not the outlaws. But in the late 60s, that starts to change again. There's the counterculture, the anti-war movement, and gangster movies see a resurgence. Bonnie and Clyde, The Godfather, and also some movies about John Dillinger. His story never really dies. In fact, he pops up again in 2009 in the movie Public Enemies. It's just after the financial crisis, and as in the 30s, a lot of Americans are mad at the banks. So Dillinger returns. The legacy of outlaws like him, it's less about the criminals themselves and more about what America wants to see in them. So Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, Al Capone, they're always lying low, hiding out, ready to strike again when the public is ready to root for them. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on History Today. This episode was produced by McKamey Lynn. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our editor and sound designer is Chris Boniello. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.